we're jumping right back into our study here, First Corinthians. We continue on, whether, whether you're tuning in over live stream or you've been with us on, on campus. And so we're seeing here the church of Corinth, not unlike uh, nations can be torn apart and, and, and can see division. The church of Corinth is, 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 is feeling and, and reeling under this, this division. And so it's the, the, the native weeds of sin, like we talked about last week, they've, they've overrun the church there at Corinth. And, and Paul's beginning to deal with many of these weeds as he writes this letter. But he starts with one of the most noxious ones. And, and, it, and one of the most pervasive weeds, and it's that of division. And so there's this schismatic, divisive spirit that, had, that has fractured that fellowship there in Corinth. And so some are saying, I follow Paul, and some are saying, I follow, follow Apollos, and others, I follow Cephas, and some even say, I follow Christ. And so each group then, though, is, is, is kind of staking their identity with this leader, and then they're looking down upon others and seeing themselves as, as better, more spiritual than, than the others, more right. And so this, of course, as we've been seeing, it unmasks, this divisiveness, it unmasks a really a deeper problem that's behind that division in the Corinthian church and behind the divisiveness of any church, including any time there's friction within our own assembly. And what is it? What is behind and deeper? It's that boastfulness and pride. Pride. And so Paul deals with this this weed problem in in Corinth, like we said last week, not just by dealing with their words and behaviors, not just by giving them some new rules to abide by, not saying, all right, you stay in your corner, you stay in your corner, and just keeping people separated that are disagreeing with one another. No, he gets below the surface and deals with that root problem of pride. And in that illustration we used last week, he's, he's applying that pre-emergent herbicide there, that, that, that herbicide of the gospel to deal with their pride. And so in the application of this comes in kind of three stages. And so we've, he's, he's addressing the problem of pride by highlighting these three very counterintuitive realities that, that just shatter pride. And so we saw this first in in verse 18 to 25 that Paul reminds us that the church's message is very counterintuitive. It's it's weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. That what we have to offer is the cross, the message of a weak, suffering Savior. It makes no sense to the world. And so that's the first thing. Our message isn't, is counterintuitive. Second, he, he reminds us that the whole makeup of the church is counterintuitive, that, that the members of the church, they're also weak and foolish by the world's estimation. Looked at this last week. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. No, you were, you, instead God chose nothings, nobodies, to bring to nothing the things that are ours. So we have no grounds for boasting whatsoever, Paul's saying. that salvation is completely the work of God, not the work of man, not the product of man's wisdom or striving or effort or anything. So now Paul is going to layer over those counterintuitive realities this third pride-killing truth, and it's found in our passage this morning, and it's, it's he's showing us through his own personal testimony that the church's ministry is counterintuitive. It is it is weak and foolish as well. And so he's, he's taking the legs out of every possible reason, these Corinthian believers and us, that we could boast. And therefore, he's dealing with the roots that are there, 
causing this division in the church. And so we can't boast in ourselves. We can't boast in the way we reasoned our way to God or worked our way to God. We can't boast in our leaders, not Paul, Cephas, anybody, our favorite pastor, our favorite internet preacher. We can't boast in those things. Our only boast is in the Lord. And our confidence rests in the gospel of, as, as God is powerfully working through this message of Christ crucified. That's, that's what he's getting, and he's getting to those roots. So in, so in verses 1 to 5, Paul gives us, as it were, through this, this little autobiographical sketch, he gives us a synopsis of his ministry in Corinth and really his philosophy ministry in all places. And it's, we're going to see, we use this word throughout this study, it's a very cruciform or cross-shaped ministry. And it's one we could stand to emulate as a church. And so when, when, when this is the focus of our ministry together, pride and, and the boasting that fuels the fires of division, they will be starved for oxygen when this is our focus. And so we're going to kind of see, you see that language of, of resolution, determination in verse 2, I decided, I determined to know nothing among, nothing among you. So I'm just kind of king off of that. And we'll just see kind of four resolutions that we should share together as a cruciform church, as a cross-shaped church. And so we'll, we're going to start at the end of the passage, that last verse, and, and then we'll come back to the beginning. We're going to see that statement of, the pur- of purpose in verse 5 that, that, that explains everything that precedes it in verses 1 to 4. Let me pray again as the Lord would help us to... To, to look to his word. Father, would you now open our eyes to behold marvelous things from your word that all, all of the glory might be yours, Lord. Draw us to Jesus as he speaks to us in his word that all, all the praise might be yours and all of the blessings ours this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, so the, the first, first thing, brothers and sisters, we want to resolve together. Look down in verse 5, and, it's, and I say it this way. Let us, let us resolve to see gospel-rooted faith flourish. Gospel-rooted faith, let's see it flourish. So what, look at verse 5. Whatever Paul did in Corinth, and we'll backfill and see what he did, but he did it for this purpose. That's, that's so that. That's a statement of purpose in the Greek. So that... Your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So Paul's aim, and I pray, brothers and sisters, our aim as a church, my aim as one of the pastors here, as a preacher here this morning even, is that that our faith would rest in God's power, not in man's wisdom. Now, what is the power of God? We should know this if you've been with us over the last several weeks. The context makes this very clear. We don't have to wonder here. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1, excuse me, 118. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the the power of God that our faith should rest in is really the power of the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ crucified. And so Jesus' weakest 
point of agony on the cross was God's greatest demonstration of power. He's made that point very clear in the la- as we've been looking at together. Because, because on the cross, it was Christ's weakness, through his weakness, that, that God lifted the infinite weight of sin and condemnation off of all of the backs of those who would trust in him. It's this incredible demonstration of power to those who are called. And so we're to labor as a church to see every man, woman, child, to have this growing faith that is rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God. This is our aim. This is what we're striving after. Faith that rests in the power of God, though, as, as he says here, it's different than faith that rests in the wisdom of men. So he's making that contrast here. What is that? Faith that rests in the wisdom of, of men. What would that be? Well, again, if we look in the context of chapter 1, it's, it's any kind of thinking, any confidence that regards the cross as foolishness. It's any way of thinking that minimizes the importance or the value or the sufficiency of Jesus' death. We could say it, kind of flip it around and say any, any way of thinking that, that attempts to increase our boast in ourselves rather than in the Lord. That's the wisdom of man. We saw it again, look back in verse 18, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the, the worldly wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so, so remember, God's way of making foolish the world's wisdom or man's wisdom, it, it's, it's by making a way of salvation that's so offensive to man's wisdom. It's salvation through the agony and the death of Jesus Christ. And so this, this is, again, this is, this is how I pray and how we should pray and how we should resolve, what we should resolve together, that our, that our church's aim, that my life's aim, would be to labor hard to see that my faith and your faith rests in God's power in the cross. We don't want our faith to rest in going to church or in being a good person, or being moral and ethical, or in humanitarianism, or anything like that. Now, I want you to go to church, so don't, don't hear me say that. I want you to be good people. I want you to obey uh, God's word, and do what's right, and do good deeds, and absolutely. But I don't want your faith to rest in those things. That's, that's the wisdom of men. That's a, that's a way of thinking that minimizes the sufficiency and the value of the cross, and seeks to provide grounds for boasting before God. Look what I have done. We don't want our faith to rest in those things. We don't want our faith to rest in a person, in a pastor, in, in a preacher. We want our faith to rest. We want our hope, as we sing, to be uh, built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. So this is, this is the ground. So that's the, that's the first kind of resolution that we need to share together. And that, that's jumping all the way down to the end of the passage. And, and, and now I want us to backfill. We've, he's, we've seen this statement of purpose that controls everything Paul does. And now let's look back to verse 1. And the verse 1, 
It begins with this very emphatic statement, and you can even pick it up in the ESV. It's kind of a clunky sentence, but they're trying to show the emphasis in the original language here. And it says, and I, that's very forceful, uh, he's very forceful in showing this connection between what precedes and what he's saying now in chapter 2. And so he's drawing this connection between his view of the gospel that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks and his methodology now as a minister of the gospel. And so here he's, he's laid out these glorious convictions and, and deeply rooted convictions about the gospel and it's all the work of God and we have no boasting before the Lord because it's all of Christ and what he's done and our message is Christ crucified. It seems, weak, seems foolish and weak to the world, but it's the very power of God. And so he's laid all that out and I'm saying, now and I... In light of all of that, let me tell you what I have done. There's this direct correlation in Paul's ministry and our ministry as a church together, brothers and sisters, between what we understand the gospel to mean and to be and how we serve. And so Paul's saying, here's, here's what I believe to be true about the gospel. Now, and I... Therefore, in light of that, when I came to you, you saw the impact of my devotion to the gospel, my confidence in the gospel, in how I behaved and how I served and how I preached when I was among you. This is, this is the connection. Listen, our deepest convictions, church, our deepest convictions that we share together, they will be reflected in how we serve, how we minister, in our methodology. What we truly believe to be the, the core of the Christian message will be, will be reflected in how we, quote, do church. If we think Christianity is, is about being good, then, then we'll build giant walls, maybe not literally, but metaphorically around us, and we'll do everything we can to keep the influence of this evil world away from us and just kind of hang on until Jesus gets back. If that's what we think the core of Christianity is about, if we, think the, if we think Christianity is about feeling good, we, we will, our ministry will simply reflect just kind of the therapeutic values of our culture and we'll, we'll just kind of prop each other up and say happy things and kind of adapt scripture to, to pull out where those places that make us feel good. If we think Christianity is about simply doing good, we'll, we'll reflect that con conviction and this dominant emphasis on just simply social involvement and engagement. But as we're more and more shaped by the cross, as we resolve to see gospel-rooted faith flourish in our assembly, those driving convictions will show up in the life and ministry of the church. That's, that's what he's saying there. When his, 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 he makes this autobiographical, autobiographical statement here. So, so second resolution, kind of seeing that connection there. It's, it's this, let us resolve to be simple. Let's resolve to be simple, and I'll show you what I mean. Let's, let's resist the pressure, as Paul did there, to be slick and savvy and showy as a church. Let's, that, was, that was Paul's plan in coming to Corinth. Look at verse 1 again. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, so there, there was a large contingency in the church at, at, at Corinth that, that when Paul would say something like that, they would be ready to say, exactly, that's it, that, that's the problem. You came and you didn't do any of that. 
You, you, that, that's what we wanted you to do. That's what we expected you to do. That's certainly what we're planning to do moving forward. Speaking lofty speech and superior wisdom, that, that's what we're looking at. And so, remember, we've, we talked about this. This is, this is this, the, the importance of that powerful rhetoric in Corinth was huge. The, the most highly valued people in that culture were those traveling Traveling speakers and philosophers and orators and, and great thinkers of the day, those, those professional speakers who would, who would come into town wearing their togas and their laurel wreaths on their head, and they'd find some marble statue to stand upon, and, 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 and they would just wow everybody with their superior wisdom, their, their powerful words of wisdom, polished words, no awkward pauses, no ums. No, no quirks in their speaking habits like this pastor. No, they're, they're always dead on, always crushing it as, as public speakers. And not only is their presentation impressive, but their, their content, the words they're saying, they're clever and they're inventive. And they, and they know how, to, how to, to, to make people think, man, I've never heard anybody think like that, say anything like that. It's so impressive. And what was happening? We've talked about this. These Corinthian Christians are trying to kind of baptize those values and expectations of the world and bring them into the church and saying, this is, this is how we want our preachers and pastors. This is how we want our church to operate, employ all of those rhetorical devices and tricks of the trade. Give us a show. Wow us with lofty speech and superior wisdom. Those things work. They do. They worked in that culture. They, they work in ours, and, and you, can, you can build a following that way. And, and we've got to be honest with that. But Paul says, no, that's not what happened. When I came to you, I, I didn't fit that polished stereotype you were looking for. I didn't meet your expectations. Paul, Paul deliberately remained out of sync with the cultural expectations of what a good leader would be. He basically says, I decided to be simple. I decided to be simple. He would keep his proclamation of the testimony of God simple and refuse to make it showy like they wanted. Because of this, Paul was an embarrassment to many in the church. He was. And we've talked, the, the, this letter, he'll later he'll talk about the fact that he was he was the father of this church in the sense that he was the first one to go preaching the gospel. And many came to faith. And, and so I just take that image. And as their father, Paul's kind of like the, the nerdy dad of a teenager. That he's there standing on the beach with black socks and sandals and a big straw hat and sunblock caked on his nose and a fanny pack. And the teenagers are just oh, so, so embarrassed. This is, this is Paul. All because he, he resolved to keep his message, his ministry, very simple. And, 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 and in this, and not, not trying to be countercultural, but it just was. As he was preaching Christ crucified, it was countercultural and it was embarrassing to them. He hasn't, he hasn't th- seen, theologically speaking, the inside of a J. Crew or whatever the coolest, you know, mint, trendy men's fashion store is. He hasn't seen that in a long time. He, he, he's, not, he's not cool. So Paul's explaining himself. I realized when I came to you, I didn't come with speech that was clever or these novel new thoughts. Or I was committed to being simple, and I was out of sync with the sophisticated culture of Corinth. 
I spoke and ministered in a way that was like the dad wearing black socks and sandals. Now, the, now the, 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 the application for us isn't let's, let's try to be really poor communicators and boring speakers. Um, don't worry, that's not what I'm uh, taking out of the passage like this. Paul, Paul wasn't a dunce. He had, he had mastery of the language. I mean, this paragraph is very eloquent. And so it's not that. He, he, but, he, but he deliberately decides not to draw attention to himself. He used every faculty he had to its fullest, but only with an eye to pointing people to Christ crucified. There's a simplicity to it. He, he didn't want people thinking, wow, what a preacher, but wow, what a savior. Let's commit to being simple, church. Let's commit, even if it means being out of sync with the culture, let's, let's be simple. Third, third resolution, let's resolve to be redundant. Resolve to be redundant. See this in verse 2. So in Paul's ministry in Corinth, in terms of his ministry there, relevance wasn't his goal. It was redundancy. That needs to be our goal as well, church, to be as repetitive as we can be. I'll show you what I mean by that. Verse 2. For I decided, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So when Paul arrived at Corinth, he just, he just kept doing the same thing over and over, proclaiming the same message. His preaching, his ministry, they're not designed to make much of him like those orders of the, in Corinth there, but to make much of Christ in his cross. This is, this is what he labored to do again and again and again. And he says, I decided, I determined. And that's really probably agitated these Corinthian Christians, many of them. That I, I, de- I determined to look awkward, to sound awkward, to be as repetitive as I could be, and say the same thing over and over. I made, he's saying, I made a judgment call based upon my convictions about the gospel. It's not accidental. It's not because he didn't know anything else to talk about. It, it, it's, there's this intentionality to it, this deliberateness, always pointing people to Christ crucified. So he made sure everything he preached, it touched on, came back to the message of the cross. I just, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. No, because you could say, yeah, there's a lot of great things we can learn from Jesus. His example and his words, his teachings, his, his you know, ethics and life principles and all these kinds of things. We can enjoy and appreciate those things about Jesus. But until you hear the sounds of spike string being driven through his wrists, thorns being pressed into his brow, you, you don't understand Jesus. And you're, and you're not really proclaiming who he is. So he's saying, this is, this is it. This is, this is my approach. It's, 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 this is the stuff that, this is what I'm committed to, to saying this again and again and again. It's not just like, you know, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, when I go to Corinth, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to, I'm just going to take one theme and just hammer on it the whole time I'm there, and it's going to be the cross. But uh, just try to kind of mix things up, stir up the waters. And that's not what he's saying. This is, his, this is controlling every aspect of his life and ministry. This is his basic, persistent pattern. And why? Because the thing mo- people most need to hear, urgently need to hear, is that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. There is pardon for guilty sinners in the cross of Christ. 
It's not just unbelievers who need to hear that. We, as a church, we need to hear this more than anything else. We need to hear there's cleansing, there's reconciliation in, in, uh, to God, peace with God, peace from God, peace with one another through the cross. There's new community. There's adoption into a new family. There, uh, we're part of the household of faith. There are thousands of other blessings besides that all come to us and available to us for free in the cross of Christ. Now we're going we're gonna to see, and we've already seen this in, in, in looking at the overview of the book, he's going to deal with all kinds of issues in the church at Corinth. They were a messed up church, and he's going to talk about very practical matters, that they had, things that they had, problems that they had there. And so he's going to deal with div- division and disagreements and lawsuits and sexual immorality and marriage and singleness and, 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 and um, food and gifts and all kinds of other practical matters in this letter. But he's, so he's not saying, you know, we're not going to talk about anything but, you know, John 3.16, which isn't explicitly about the cross, but, you know, like the, the, the Isaiah 53. We're not, we're not just going to, we're just going to talk about that and nothing else. That's not it. So it's, it's not all he talked on, about and preached on was the crucifixion of Jesus, but it was always the centerpiece and everything related back to it. That's what we said at the beginning of this letter. What he, every, he wants him to see and think about every issue of life through the lens of the gospel, which is Christ crucified. Everything comes back to this. So all of those and any other issue we face must be understood and seen through that lens of the cross. All ethical issues must be tied to the cross. All principles and morals must be tied to the cross. All marriage challenges and, and, and principles and family issues, they come back to the cross. All relational tensions in the church, they've they, they got to be addressed by looking to the cross. Everything comes back to the cross for Paul. And here's the reality. If we don't determine, if we don't decide to know nothing but Christ crucified, if we don't plan to keep the, the gospel central in our church, in our lives, other things will begin to take front and center stage. It's going to happen. Fourth and last. Let's, let's resolve to be forgettable. Let's resolve to be forgettable. I mean, what is it that makes an effective servant of Christ, a minister of this gospel? And I'm not talking about an ordained minister, but uh, as you as a Christian, you are, you are an ambassador of the Lord. You're an instrument in his hands. What, does it make, what is it that makes someone effective as a, as a Christian? Is it because you're someone who really matters in this world? No, it's actually, it's the person who knows that he or she doesn't really matter. So Paul, look at Paul's condition as he ministers among them. He, he, first, it, it's weakness, frailness. And, when I, and I was with you, verse 3, in weakness. When he showed up at, in Corinth at the church there, he was weak. He was, he was a wreck. He was. His health had been shattered by these repeated cycles of mob violence and and imprisonment. And so just if you look back in the the book of Acts, but we we find in Acts 18 when he comes into Corinth. But if you look in the chapters before that, going back to chapter 14 of Acts, you find in Iconium he's he's almost stoned to death by a mob. In in Lystra he's stoned again. He's dragged out of the city. His body is dumped by the city gates. He's left for dead. In Philippi, chapter 16, he's preaching and cites this riot, and, and Paul, he and Silas are beaten and thrown in jail. Same thing happens when he goes to Thessalonica, 
but he escapes, goes to Berea, and instead Jason, the person he's staying with, is, is beaten up, and, and, and then he goes to Berea, another riot breaks out, and his mission team has to flee. And so by the time Paul gets to Corinth in chapter 18, he is weak. He's, he's jumpy. He's twitchy. He's scared. There's like, I mean, I'm not making light of it, like PTSD kind of stuff is what it seems. Look at, it, look at his disposition, fear, timidity. I was weakness and in fear. He didn't come in strong and bold and gregarious and let's do this thing. He came in scared. Wouldn't you be? Every time you open your mouth and preach this message, it's foolishness and there's a weakness in, the, in that culture, particularly in that Corinthian culture. What? There's a riot and somebody, and you're beaten and you're bloodied every place you go. And so you notice how his fear and his weakness, they manifest itself and you see it in his appearance. He came in, in much trembling. He's shaken. So by his own admission, he, when he shows up at Corinth, he's, he's there and he's not some impressive figure. He's not at his peak. Then with regard to his preaching itself, verse 4, my message, or my speech and my message, they were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, saying my, my message, my preaching, my, the content, the style, everything, it wasn't anything to talk about. It, my content was elementary. My style was unrefined. I was forgettable. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you... You, you get a, a sense of, of kind of the, the attitude about Paul's teaching there in, in Corinth. They, he's, he's kind of picking up on the criticism around the lunch table on Sunday afternoon uh, in, the, in the Corinthian church there. Yeah, Pat, we, we get it. We understand that happens, so it's okay. Uh, but in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For they say, these people are saying, his letters are weighty and strong. I mean, he's like, man, the guy can write. He's good with a pen. But then they go on, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech, no account. Not respectable. Very forgettable. It's, it's not much. But you need to know this. It's not that Paul didn't have these gifts. Paul's not some kind of socially awkward, greasy-haired, you know, hunchback, stuttering, reclusive, Quasimodo kind of guy that... That, uh, you know, it's just this oddball. No, Paul was trained at the, at the feet of the distinguished Gamaliel. He, he, he had been the spokesperson of the Pharisees. If they were looking for a, someone to make a comment from the Pharisees and, the, you know, the news media sticking a mic in his face, he's the guy that's representing them. He, he, he could win arguments. He could destroy debate opponent, opponents. He could pin you down with his words. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He, he, he could impress. He's extremely talented. And so it's not that he didn't have those, those mental or, or uh, you know, rhetorical capacities, but it's that he wouldn't use those capacities at the end of the day because he didn't want people to be impressed with himself but with Christ. He wanted to preach in such a way that he was forgettable. But Christ and the cross were powerful in a way that demonstrated power of God's spirit. And that's what he goes on to say. Verse 4, it's... I, was, I, I, didn't, I didn't speak in words, in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Spirit's power through the weakness of a forgettable mouthpiece. That's, that was it. 
He didn't, he didn't want to see how much power he could muster up for Jesus, but it's how can the power of God's spirit shine through my weakness? When the Lord taught him this lesson, as we know famously in 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh, and, and it gets to the place where he's, his confession is power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we, we have this treasure, the gospel in earthen vessels, jars of clay, just our weak physical bodies. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. I just say, I'm not trying to make this about me as a, as a preacher here, that, that's not it, but I, I come to you as one of your pastors in weakness. You know that by now if you've been here for 18 years. <laughs> There's not much here. But I, I come with fear and trembling and full of self-doubt. I don't, dust, I don't distrust the power and the promise of God. I distrust myself. It's, a, it's an awesome responsibility ministering the word in any capacity. Uh, but as I stand here each week, it's because of a lack of faith. Yes and no. I believe, Lord, but help, help my unbelief. And so we, we get that. But I tremble mostly just because of a profound sense of insufficiency for this task. This is a, this, but here's what we see. This is a gift from God. Why? So I won't forget it's God's power. It's not man's wisdom which creates and grows faith that's rooted in God's power, not in, not in man's wisdom. And so pray, pray for one another. Pray for preachers and teachers and pastors in this flock. Pray for me. Pray that God would humble me. I didn't say it was your job to humble me. God is perfectly capable of doing that on his own. So, um, But pray, Lord, strip Strip Justin of everything that he would hope in and cling to other than you. Everything he would rely upon that's not your spirit. Remind him that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. May Justin find power in, your, in, in weakness and depend upon your spirit's power to add life to words. The, the way, brothers and sisters, take it off of me. Look, let's talk to one another. The way to, to, to be a, to, to, to a powerful, life-changing, soul-stirring, spirit-filled ministry together, brothers and sisters, is through weakness. It's through weakness. Being humble, broken-hearted, weak, earthen vessels together. Stripped of self-reliance forced to rely upon God's spirit to add life to our words and our ministry, realizing our insufficiency for this task. There needs to be some sanctified shaking in our boots as a church, together, trembling at this task that the Lord has given us, but full of hope 
because the Spirit is able to work powerfully, brothers and sisters, through the word of the cross, which is the very power and wisdom of God. This is what I pray would characterize our church, our ministry together as a church. We, we need this. Making this our aim, again, thinking of the context, this will starve pride, the pride that fuels so much of the division in the church. It will starve it of the oxygen it needs. And and as an increasingly cruciform, cross-shaped church, because of our deep and growing convictions of the centrality of the gospel of Christ crucified, that I pray that we would share these convictions. If I could just restate them again, and then we'll pray. And and it's this, as church, let's resolve together to see gospel-rooted faith flourish among us here. And if that's going to happen, if that's our aim, we're going to share these resolutions and we're going to resolve to be simple, not to be distracted by the pressures to conform to the world's values and expectations of you got to do this. We're going to resolve to be redundant, keeping the message of Christ crucified front and center, pulsating through everything we do. And then finally, we're going we're to be resolved to be okay with being forgettable, content to decrease Christ might increase among us. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we bless you for your word. And we pray that by the finger of your spirit, you might write this word that we just have been looking at onto our hearts, Lord, collectively as a church. Grant us that the gospel might come to each of us, to us collectively, as dem- in, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that we might be changed and that you might be exalted. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.